Hello. My name is Dear. <laughs> my name is Dear. <laughs> like, this is different. <laughs> Hello, my name is Aviva, and I will be having a conversation with Dear over the New York Trans Oral History Project in collaboration with the New York Public Library's Community Oral History Project. This is an oral history project centered on the experience of trans identifying people. It's November, what's the day? 12th. 12th, 2019, and it's being recorded in Chinatown. Hi. Sego, hello, how are you? Good. Could you tell me your name? Yeah, my name is Dio Ganti. And I was wondering if you could tell me all the names or some names that come to you of your family members. Like the names of my family members or names yeah, that I've just gotten? Any kind of experience of naming related to you and your family. Oh. Yeah, so my name, I only have one name. Um I do not have a colonizer name. I only have my Ungwe Hue, my native name, which was given to me in a ceremony um, by a clan mother with my family there. And yeah, I've had a series of nicknames. Dio Ganti, I got that name around like the age of two. But before that, people called me like Kate Gaa, which means little sister. They called me Goody because I was really good. And they called me Smiley because I smiled a lot. Um, yes, but I, Dio is just, you know, an abbreviation of Dio Ganti, and I use that, like, throughout my music, and just, like, interactions with different people, and then I turned it into, like, a little bit of an acronym, do it ourselves, but most people in my family, no, I'd say a portion of people in my family have Ungwehue names, like names given to them in the longhouse. And then others have colonized names, like English names, where there wasn't a ceremony around the name. And why did some get some names and some get the others? Well, that would have to do with, like, um, the relationship to our longhouse and our culture and our traditions. So my mom remarried um, to a non-native white man and then those were the the names given to those kids were from his grandmother you know so they were family names to him but because my mom was no longer a part of the longhouse in the same way since she married a non-native um yeah it just made more sense to get an english name and you mentioned to me that you might get a new name. Um, I want a Mohawk name. So my name is actually Onondaga. Interestingly enough, I'm not Onondaga. Onondagas and Mohawks are both part of the Haudenosaunee or the Iroquois. But I was born in Onondaga and I'm a Mohawk. And now I live in a Mohawk territory called Akwesasne. And... Every, nobody can say my name because it's it's a different dialect and people are sometimes there's even mohawk people and they don't even know that it's i have a name because they don't there's no d's in mohawk there's only t's that sound like d's so my name is like an indicator that i'm a little bit of an outsider which is like not the biggest deal but i think it would be awesome to have a mohawk name as well and how would that happen that's kind of like more I guess internal yeah internal knowledge but there's ceremonies for that 
you just have to like be a part of the community to like get access to the ceremonies you know you have to build those relationships which i'm still i'm still doing because i'm was born and raised in a different community and then i've spent time here and in oakland and what has your relationship been to new york state or where you grew up and what it's called like generally um well we have never given up our land (laughs) it was taken from us so my relationship to the state is i don't i mean i don't believe in it but i have to exist in it um for example like the new york state dmv doesn't take my birth certificate because i was born on the onondaga nation and I have a Haudenosaunee birth certificate, so they refused to take it. They told me to get a real one from New York State. Um, as if, you know, that defines what a nation or what a, what a state is. So I have a... Yeah, I guess like a distaste in my mouth. Um, because it's it's a continued attack on my people. You know, it's a continued attack on our land and on our rights. Um, Since the Revolutionary War, that's when we lost like 96% of our land. Um, It was awarded to soldiers after the Revolutionary War. And a lot of like the counties in upstate New York, they're named after war generals. Sullivan and... um, Yeah, that's the only one I can think of right now. But yeah, a lot of, if you look into the names of the counties in upstate New York, they're named after generals from the war. And it's just like a continued reminder, you know, of that like genocide and displacement that's like very much in your face, but then also invisibilized with our native culture. Mm. So I don't, I don't care for New York State. (laughs) They, you know, like the fact that I can't even get a license in New York State because I'm have a birth certificate from a sovereign nation, it just leaves a really bad taste in my mouth because there's things that could be done, you know? Like I know, for example, there's um, folks who are undocumented who don't have birth certificates, but they're able to get licenses. Mm. Um, and do you want to share a bit about growing up on the res? Yeah, I grew up most, I was born on the res, but then once my parents split up, I grew up off the reservation. So a lot of my experience is like living in a neighboring town and then my dad being on the res. Um, But my dad had a really awesome house. He had one of the oldest houses on the res, Um, too old for pipes, so there was no running water. And he had an outhouse, which was really... It's funny looking back and you think about like the challenges of going to the toilet in the middle of the night as like a seven year old, you know, and like just needing to wake another sibling up to go to the bathroom, having to put on your shoes and then running outside to the freezing cold outhouse and then needing to check for spiders and then sitting on this cold toilet seat. Yeah, makes you appreciate different amenities, you know. And... Did you go to school on the reservation or off it? I went to school on the res until the grade of like maybe third or fourth grade. 
And then I went to the neighboring, like, white school. And that was a culture shock for sure. It was, like, different. Obviously, there were non-natives, and we had, we learned just, like, different things. We, like, I previously I had been doing, like, we would learn our language. Well, it was Onondaga. We would learn the language every day, you know? So there was culture and language that were just completely immersed into our education. And then going to the non-native school off the res, it was like we were learning. I remember I did a project on Ben Franklin and the states and Massachusetts, you know? We had to each pick a state and they had to each pick a person. It's like, why did I dress up like Ben Franklin when I was 10? Like, it's so out of hand, you know? So it was really, you just I just jumped into a completely different culture. But, yeah. And did you have any, like, family members at the time kind of, like, analyzing or, like, helping kind of speak through those differences with you? Or was it something you had to kind of come to later? No, I think it's something that I've only come to in my adult life. Just, like, the stark, um, like, the really, yeah, the contrasts of lives. And we still, like, you know, played on softball teams and had friends and... My dad still lived on the res, so it wasn't, it didn't feel so distant. But looking back, it was really difficult for me to adjust. Yeah. Mm. But thank goodness for therapy. <laughs> what were other ways you adjusted? Um, I adjusted, like, later in life, I know. I, I, I've, like... Yeah, I've just tied my adjusting to different, like, I guess, like, social outcast moments, you know, where I felt othered and I felt different going to the non-native school and I didn't necessarily know why, you know, but I felt very much different. And I think that there was this, like, longing to fit in. There was, felt like this need to be like other people's and not feel different and not feel outcasted or whatnot but you know there's like kind of always that like yeah sometimes you just you just don't fit in you know like no matter how much you want to or try it's like no I was a little brown queer kid like I never was going to fit in with the blonde haired blue eyed white girls you know and how did the, I don't know if you were old enough or returned to the reservation while you were coming into your queerness, but like, how did that experience evolve for you? Well, that was basically just a few years ago. So my family lives on a different reservation, Akwesasne, and that's where my dad's family's from. So that's where I like, yeah, I speak with like a lot of pride, like coming from there and being, yeah, just being somebody who is from that community, you know? Um, But being an adult and being queer at home is, it's definitely challenging. Like, I don't see visibly queer people at home. And I say that to my siblings and they're always like, no, but this And I'm like, no, no, like coming from my queer perspective, I don't see any other queer people. Like, maybe you know them in the community, but... I don't see them. So that's challenging. Um, yeah. Mm. 
then how has like queerness or and transness or two spiritness um, is discussed in like at home? I'd say it's not really discussed. Like I'm able to find spaces, you know, with my therapist to talk about being queer or I can talk with my sister who's a mental health therapist and um, drug counselor. She has um, students that she works with, native youth that are at the like neighboring um, high school. She works with different trans youth. So there's resources she'll ask me about and there's different things she'll talk to talk to me about um and a lot of times it's just you know that same feelings of isolation that I have as an adult but like magnified because it's youth who um a lot of times may be suicidal or you know may feel really disconnected and may feel experiencing a lot of different like body dysmorphia and um not having community so it's definitely an intention the more time I'm able to spend at home to like help create a safe space for for youth you know discussing maybe that's just like a once a month social hour at the at the rec or something you know are there questions that they ask you that you have trouble answering or is there like I don't know experiences that you've had that you'll I don't know, intense about when you're with children or kids that haven't really like reached a certain kind of like level of a community when they're still living in communities that are kind of like isolated. I don't know, like what are the differences when you're around, yeah, the youth in a place like that where it's not like New York City or whatever? Um, I would say that I don't, unfortunately, I don't get to work with like queer youth at home as much as I would like. Um, but working with different youth, I work with, with youth at home and a lot of times I think it's just like one of the most surprising things is, is just like instilling the pride that I have like into the youth and kind of like seeing and sharing in the excitement, like being Mohawk and being Ungwehue, to be Ungwe, being Ungwehue is to be Mohawk, you know? So it's being Ungwehue is just like one of the greatest feelings as well as achievements, you know? There's a lot, there's a lot of resilience in our ancestors' actions that have led to today and to me being able to share these words and to be able to sit here, you know? A lot of us, we come from lineages like that where it's, our ancestors literally had to fight for our survival. So being able to share that with youth is, you know, the sense of joy and pride. Mm. And this is kind of a leading question, which I probably shouldn't ask, but like, do you ever feel like a sense of exhaustion when like other people outside of the community want you to narrate or explain your nativeness? Oh, 100%. Yeah, I think on a daily basis. And as of lately, that's like one of the major reasons why I stay in my home community. Because it's not worth being triggered, right? It's like, it's such a large part of my identity that I don't want to feel misunderstood at that at that level. 
And a lot of times it's like, even though I don't have a queer community at home, it's like, I kind of just, yeah, I, I, I'll be more solitary at home to just not, to relieve some of the triggers around my culture. Mm. And have there been like certain workplaces or like communities that you've had to interact with outside of the community that either supported you feeling more connective through your multiple identities or like, I don't know, also more alienated from them? I'm sure there's like, but I'm just either or or both. Yeah, I think like in, in Oakland, Oakland is a place that like I've found really can hold my intersections. So that's like my queerness and my two-spiritness, my many-spiritness, um, and my indigeneity. So even though I'm far from home, I'm able to connect with a lot of different people, um, indigenous folks from the south, from the west coast, from the north, like Salish and Yurok and Blackfoot, um, and then Aztecs and different people who speak Nawa in the south and it that's like a whole other level I don't know it's like a connectedness connectivity with like a whole nother side of your family that you almost didn't even know existed you know so it's like oh hey cousin we don't speak the same language but hey cousin you look like my cousin you know so I, I like being on the west coast for that because of like the amount of brown folks that are there and the amount of indigenous people that are there. And it took me a second to realize that like, I'm like, oh, even we got colonized by different people. Like we got colonized by the French in in, like Mohawks in Canada and Akwesasne. Like that's a French speaking area in English, obviously. But and in the South, people got colonized by Spanish. We're all native indigenous people. So I like Cali for that and the warm weather. Allows me to be in my body like in a different way because I don't have to have so many layers on. I don't have to have so, yeah, cover myself up in the same way. Mm. What else allows you to be in your body? Like I've just in terms of um, gender stuff, like what makes you feel embodied generally? Um... Well, stretching, stretching is something that's like really allows me to connect to how I'm feeling and then focus on different like areas of my body that are, that are hurting and then just be gentle with myself as I like work to ease the pain. And then it's something where if you, there's... it's like repetitive you know you can see results and that that feels really good Mm -hmm. and um just as like a broader question how would you describe your gender or your relationship to to spiritness um i always say my gender is everything and nothing so yeah i feel like i embody masculinity femininity and then what's not defined between that and then beyond that. 
because I know that within our indigenous culture, within Haudenosaunee culture, there were people, there's always been people throughout time that didn't have genders or maybe embodied several genders. And I'm still searching to find out who those queer ancestors were within my own culture. But I know that these people exist because they exist today. And there wasn't the language, you know? So that's why I always say, like, everything and nothing, because, yeah. When you say there wasn't the language, the language to speak about the specific identity category now, or what does that mean? Yeah, I I guess, like, we have all the language now, like, to define, like, oh, I'm non-binary. Oh, we're even defining a binary, you know? We're able to define, like, that I'm gender non-conforming. Or that I feel like I'm too spirit. And everything that I've done my research on, there's no language to define that, even in my own language. You know what I mean? So it's just new terms that we've come up with for things that I've always, and people that I've always existed. Have you found any models or people that you can reflect on as, as predating you? Yeah, and I cannot remember... The name. There's a Zuni, a Zuni person, but there's a lot of different instances, um, like in Navajo and Zuni Pueblo culture, where two spirit people were, like highly revered, in certain cultures and just like held in high regard. Um, yeah, so I like to think of that too as like the fluidity. That are. Like. I know that based off of how my ancestors were, they were likely accepting of people within their community who were born in their community. Like there was a place for everyone, you know. And do you feel that way presently with your family? In my immediate family, yeah. I think there's a lot that they don't maybe understand yet about gender. But they're really loving, kind, and I think just maybe need some more articles, or you know, because they've like accepted me and my queerness, and they have a lot of love for me. They're just don't read the same books as me, you know, which is fine. Totally. Um, and I wanted to ask you how you came to rap. Okay, hip-hop. So, I started, I guess it kind of came out of, like, writing and using poetry as a means of expression. But, excuse me. But it um evolved when I got into college, and I took this class called Hip-Hop as a Philosophical Discourse. And the class was really amazing. It was taught by Noelle Paley and T.A. Mike Lane. And we basically learned about hip-hop culture and the roots of it and it being, you know, an act of resistance stemming from Jamaica, moving to the Bronx, and continuing to be this, this fight against, you know, oppressive forces, but also unifying 
in celebratory. And provocative and it was like I guess out of out uh, what's this what's the word out of the box out the box <laughs> yeah you could just say that <laughs> <laughs> yeah so it just like broke the mold and I kind of like I, I like that I like that a lot and I like hip-hop's impact throughout time you know of getting messages across and being a voice for different communities being a proud voice a celebratory voice speaking on real issues that may not have had the same platform you know had they not like risen through people's speakers and also like hip-hop being um like technically it was it was something new right like i was saying it was out of the box it was like it changed the game in the sense of like people were engineering audio and cutting audio live in a way that people had never done before and cutting edge that's the word that i've been looking for <laughs> so we learned all you know all of this stuff at, in in class and obviously i've done my own research since and continued to be interested in the topic but on we also performed in the class we had um notebooks and we would write rhymes we'd write bars we had to introduce ourselves to the class with like four bars and i remember being like easy done like so ready do you remember your bars no no no. Uh i have the notebook somewhere but and then we also would like battle each other which got really out of hand and like it was so bad slash good People were crying. People didn't want to come to class. People were getting really anxious. I remember somebody had red hair and they made somebody said the curtain matched the drapes and we just lost it, you know. Somebody was in a sorority. Somebody bringing up you buying your friends. Like we went in. That was one of the most entertaining classes that I had. So it was like kind of group therapy too. Like people had to kind of process the rap and how they felt. Yeah, and it was like, oh shit, I can take shots at this person right now. And I don't think my teacher meant for it to go in that direction. But like with the teachings of what battle rap was, like it went there. But then we ended up segueing into like, okay, let's freestyle or let's cipher, you know? So we learned a lot of different elements. And that was really just like the spark that I needed to ignite ignite the medium in me you know because i remember after that i would just be freestyling like all the time i'm like this is fun and i ended up that was my last semester at at Cortland, suny Cortland, and then i moved to new york city and then i started working at the working families party in brooklyn but I, i had already worked with them but i had a couple friends there and we would rhyme together and rap all the time and we had a little crew you know and one of them was queer so a lot of the, what came out too was just like you know this little hip-hop is is an art in general it kind of like allows you to explore different sides of your personality you know and at that point it just needing to be this sense of bravado or this 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 opportunity for me to tell stories and tell and speak on different parts of my identity that never had exposure like my queerness mm. 
Is there like a particular song that you wrote that you've performed that's like scared you or scares you still that you're just like, oh, I did that? <laughs> yeah, the pussy vortex. <laughs> <laughs> Could you explain slash perhaps say some of the bars if you wanted to? Sure, yeah. So the, the first line, and my my friend brought this up to me. They're like, I wrote this when I was 21. Yeah, I believe I was 21, maybe 22, because was, that was like the summer that I got out of college. And my friend and my little hip-hop crew asked me, like, why I wasn't ending the relationship. And I was like, oh, you know, and I gave all the reasons why it sucked, like, the, the things were not going smooth. And then I talked about, like, the euphoric, like, orgasmic exploration of body mind and spirit or whatever was happening you know and my friend's like you're in the pussy vortex i'm like oh my god i am so the first lines are like got me flipping through my phone got me flipping through your phone got me playing love jones got me in the anger zone got me fearing to be alone got me up all night wondering is that smell his cologne? Is that his ringtone? Is you really on your own? Is he giving you the bone? Is he making you scream and moan? Is he dropping his seeds and making his clones? Is he trying to wipe you and take you home? Is he, is he, is he prepping your hand for a ring and a stone? Cause any other situation. So basically you get it though, right? And then that scenario like came up again recently. And my friend was just like, D, you've been through this first verse pussy vortex and it was just so telling to me yeah yeah because i already had been there so i felt very appreciative of my former self for making this song as like a timestamp, you know and what so kind of like sends you off guard when you hear it or think about it the fact that i was so hurt and so sad and confused about my relationship, but I was still able to, um, I was still able to make a song that slaps. Like, cause that first part of the verse, it sounds really heavy, but when it's matched with the beat and then the chorus and then the rest of the song, cause the song kind of takes a more uplifting pickup, um, yeah, I just feel really proud of my former self for capturing that moment, speaking and writing on my pain, turning it into a song, making a beat for it, recording it, getting it mixed, getting it mastered, putting it on Spotify, and then being able to listen to it 10 years later. <laughs> yeah. Have you had other experiences of other expressions that are like that, where you're just like in it for that kind of like dedicated effort? Where then it gives you that kind of satisfaction? I guess not. Outside of my music, I haven't really felt that same, like, linear... Yeah, that linear thread like that. Mm-hmm. But I get that I feeling a lot with my the production on my music. That's not something that I really speak to... Speak on too much because it's not my... um. Yeah, it's just like I'm not a talent that I'm, like, boastful about. Because I feel like sometimes imposter syndrome is real. But then we can also, if we surround ourselves somewhere with people who are like really incredibly talented musicians, it's not like the thing that I'm putting out there 
the most. You know, if I'm like freestyling or jamming with people, I'll use my voice rather than me being on the keys, you know, or me being on the drum pad. But actually, Tigerpaw was somebody who taught me how to use a digital audio workspace. And that has like really pushed my creativity. That was at least like seven years ago, six years ago. But that's allowed me to yeah, to continue to translate my creativity into composing music and composing sounds. And then when I go back and I listen to these sounds and these music, this music that I made that I'm not necessarily rapping on, I get that same feeling like, whoa, I'm so proud of myself for doing this. Um, what's, the, what's the album you're working on now or the song you're working on now? The album I'm working on, um, it's going to be called Resbian. And it's about my return to the res. I was going to call it Born Again Resbian. It gets a lot of laughs, but the religious undertones are just so real on it that I'm like, I don't know. So I'm going to, um, I think it'll just be called Resbian. And it's going to have 10, 11 tracks on it. And they're all recorded. Um, they're all the tracks are made by native producers. I've co-produced some of them. I recorded most of it on the res and like all of it in Canada. <laughs> mm, is there a song you really love that you've written? Well, since this is a gay talk, I did write another Pussy Vortex 2.0, essentially. <laughs> I had to. You know, I, like I said, it slapped still 10 years later. I was at Stanford performing for their students out there they're so amazing but when i was on stage they were screaming during the pussy vortex like screaming and i was like i love this reaction that's so amazing there's no other song of mine where people are screaming in the front row so i, I wrote a pussy vortex 2.0 called puff puff passion and i think that it's very clever and witty and amazing and can we get a preview yeah, sure. Why not? It's um it's about consent. And this verse is about um yeah, it's just about consent. I'll leave it at that and you can figure out the rest. So it goes, "Do you mind if I smoke up in that bedroom? Give me a little strength when I get that headroom. Give me a little focus when I get that bed move. Either way, okay, we can write our own rules. Gifted when I dip it, then we get it. Now we live in. Ask you if you with it, be your man's and your girlfriend. Never miss the kissing on the way to lick the kitten. If it's spitting or it's whipping, I'm in to lots of giving. Pillow princess winning, power bottom wishes. Dripping, then we stripping. It's a lifestyle and a movement. Yeah, you was delicious like I'm all up in the kitchen. I'm always down to listen and help you wash your dishes. That puff of passion. <laughs> um, who else do you collaborate with? Um, I collaborate with Chotima, Beto Guapo Flaco, um, Purple Cats and Slacks, Moe's, Moe's Beats, Mr. J.O.C., my niece, Peaches Blanco, ZB1, Exquisite Ghost. Yeah. Wow. And then Res Boy Beats. Those are some of the people who are going to be on my album, the next one. Damn, that's a lot of people. Yeah, I try. I try really 
hard to be collaborative, but it's also like, yeah, that's just the nature of the, of the art form. Mm-hmm. I don't know how to make all the beats. I don't know how to mix and master, you know, completely on my own yet, but do it ourselves. We're getting there. Mm-hmm. But also it's kind of beautiful not to be able, not to have to do it all yourself. That is true. I want to know how to, though. Definitely. definitely. Yeah. Um, this might be an exhausting question. You can skip it. But I just, because I know you were so active at Standing Rock, I just wanted to know if you, yeah, how that experience connects to the way that you, like, are feeling, like, politically engaged now or have always felt or how it's changed the way that you think about your engagement. Um, just, like, any general, like, thoughts about that that what that did or what that experience was like for you yeah standing rock um yeah standing rock was a lot i feel like it's still an experience that like sits really close to me and it doesn't feel like it was three years ago it's Yeah, there was a lot that happened in a short period of time that felt like this continued genocidal reminder of the, um, like this imperialist conquest, you know, that's been set out on Turtle Island and against Native people. Just like watching police forces from like severing seven neighboring states just run out to the Dakotas to spray natives with freezing cold water and freezing temperatures. You know, it was like, what the... It, it was this reminder that this fight has been going on. It, it was literally those people's ancestors that sought to eradicate and erase and stole land from the natives who are over here fighting to protect water. And it was so clear what our interests were rooted in, right? We were there to protect people's clean water and their ways of life that were dependent on the clean water. And then, you know, standing up for the earth. And then there were these cops from different counties, different states. There were um, people who were, what are they, the... Army Reserve, they were there. So there's all these different levels, you know, county, state, national. But they were protecting a corporate interest. They were protecting a pipeline to be built. And you saw the lengths at which they went to protect land and property. And that was terrifying. And you saw the lengths at which they went to support the private security. Because the private security is basically... um, they're ex-military, they're paramilitary people who operate alongside of the law, but above it because they can do what they want. And we saw that happen there. Um, so it just was a reinforcement of this like continued distrust, you know, in the government, on a state level, on a federal level. And it was a reminder of like the cooperation that you see between all of these like infrastructures and how easily they form and bind together like everyone from the um the FAA you know creating a no fly zone so that we couldn't 
no longer send our drones up and let FAA doesn't shouldn't even be able to make regulations like that over a reservation over a very small piece of land but you saw everybody cooperated local farmers you know there we thought about it we're like where do these planes why are they, why are there planes flying 24 hours a day like how right they must be at a local nearby airport where they go and get fuel right so there's clearly there's like a cooperation but it also in the same sense like solidified and bonded this strength of and or this strength of resilience you know among native people but it created this like sense of urgency and i'm kind of feeling that like urgency just kind of like simmering a little but it's still it's it's still there like underlying because i know how how bad it can get you know i know that they will turn on hoses and freezing cold water so that oil can move easier easier like i saw how little they and when i say they it's it's the nation it's the state i see how easily they yeah they mobilize Um, I think I asked you this a while ago, but I was wondering, um, you know, with with so much um, precarity in 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 this life, with the status of like our Earth's health, like how does your community speak about futurity and 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 living with the Earth, given you know the the health of it and the status of of where we're at with it. So I think that my people have always been futurists, right? Like the there's like a seventh generation prophecy or a seventh generation teaching that's like we consider our actions um, for the next seven generations. And it kind of like creates this mindset where you're, you're just considering, right? Like what would actually seven generations be? You know, and I don't, I have, I have a family tree that one of my cousins is a genealogist. And I recently went back and looked at like, what's seven generations? It's a long time. So to, if you move about the world, considering your own kin and the next relation and the next relation and next relation. I think that's like a really beautiful way to move. But I also think that there's like some really harsh realities that we have to face like about our consumption, especially with plastics. Um, yeah, and I think that like most all consumerist, like capitalist societies, you know, we, we, we take in a lot of garbage, produce a lot of garbage. There's a lot of like throwaway materials and that's like in every community, you know, I don't, I would love to see my community, my own personal community do more like, but it's, it comes with education and it comes with people being able to afford alternatives, you know, it's like, it's not by choice that we fucking drink out of water bottles. It's because that's what we can afford because our water's poisoned, you know, 
it's not out of choice that I drive my car 20, 30 miles to the grocery store. Like, that's that's where it is, you know? Mm. Can you just explain since I... Or maybe I don't know if this is should be on the record or maybe it's not a secret thing, but you how you were saying that some reservations can only be accessed by plane. Oh, yeah, there's fly-in communities in Canada. Canada. So this is something that, like... Because I live in a border town, like the Canadian United Snakes border goes through my territory. I've, and I moved home in the past couple of years. I've been like very purposely learning more about Canadian indigenous people because there's a difference, right? Between First Nations folks and what folks have access to in the North versus what they have access to in the States. Um, and fuck borders they're fake but like i live with one going through my community and the distinction has to be made when you're dealing with the states and canada and sometimes you know it just it's it's very real and so the issues native folks face in canada they're they're different um being like in the services and the desolation that some of these communities experience just by like pure geography and so there's some native communities where they are only accessible by flying a plane in. Yeah, so that, like, I know sometimes there's folks from different neighboring um, communities. They'll be in my community to receive different services or to, you know, um, have access to different jobs. Sometimes there's even random, like, folks on the police force from other communities but yeah it makes me feel like a different sense of pride I guess to be from a community that's able to provide so much resources for its people um like the dentist and the doctor and therapy and job programs and some job training you know these are all like things I definitely don't take for for granted and I guess this can apply to both where you live now or, and when you lived here in the city and um, I wanted to know what you do or, or still do or did for fun <laughs> oh thanks well for fun I've recently got into beading it's really relaxing for my brain. It's like the type of productive chill that I, I like. Um, this summer, I was really into gardening. I was just love taking care of plants, little plantitas. Um, I think it's a great way to uh, just disperse the energy inside of me and just put it into plants, something living, put it into the soil. I also... Yeah, I mean, making music and making beats is like pretty top-notch idea of fun for me. And do you have groupies now that you? <laughs> no, no, no. I wouldn't allow it. One time I had, or over the summer after I performed the Pussy Vortex in, I think it was Ottawa. <laughs> somebody came up to me and told me I would like to kneel after that song, and I was like. 
Well, I really appreciate your forwardness, but I'm going to have to decline. <laughs> Damn. Yeah. I couldn't have done that. I, don't, I wouldn't have done that. But. Yeah. It takes a lot of courage. Yeah. <laughs> know what you want. But no, no groupies. Just Instagram followers and yeah. That's a different kind. Yeah, they're quiet. You don't like, they would never call themselves groupies, you know? Mm-hmm. And I wanted to know more about like, yeah, I guess in your, in your experience of being um, a queer person, but in a place that's more isolated, if you, if and how you feel like loneliness versus like aloneness, like and perhaps where, I don't know, dating or some sort of social life fits in, like, how do you negotiate this or feel at home in this? Hmm. Good questions. I think that loneliness I felt as like a longing, you know, for, I don't know, maybe the validation and the comfort of others. But it's always like, it always passes. It's like a fleeting feeling. And then aloneness is like a sense of completeness or a feeling of content with like my plants or with my art or being outside where I don't feel like I need anything. I don't need anything else to feel good and just be in the moment. And... Yeah, I think it's important, like, for my own development, but I think it's good to be able to know how to be with yourself, like, outside of having headphones on or music to relax us or white noise. I think that, yeah, sitting with yourself can help to combat the feelings of loneliness, even though that may seem backwards. Hmm. How do you feel being back in the city? Like, what is that experience versus returning home? Well, being in the city is kind of my... It's like my social outlet, you know? Like, this is where I get to date. This is where I get to see friends and socialize and, like, talk about issues that are really important to me. Talk about politics and... I may not be able to talk about like indigenous politics or Mohawk politics or Haudenosaunee politics on the same level, but I, um, yeah, I think I'm doing a better job of just also limiting myself, like to prevent burnout and not giving all of myself, my chi or my essence, like away and just moving slower and not scheduling so many activities the older I get the wiser I get (laughs) what politics are like emerging in this kind of environment that aren't necessarily um, tied to indigenous rights politics well I think that like the way I mean there's no real conversations on like people back home a lot of folks back home don't get I don't just so much. I was just say at home there's a lot of homophobia and there's a lot of 
transphobia. There's a lot of anti-blackness in a lot of in native communities, you know. And how does that manifest? Like just like talking around. Like how do you feel like, that? Uh, people will call each other faggot. People will call each other the N word. And there's clearly no black people around, you know. Um, and yeah, it's just extremely disheartening. And you can I have conversations with folks and have conversations with um, with people and educate them, you know. But it's just disheartening. But it's like part of the work that I'm doing and that I will continue to do. It's not easy. But it's important to like create safe spaces, you know. I I want my friends to be able to visit me at home, but I need to do the work to make spaces safe so that they can come. Mm. And how does um, uh, transphobia manifest on the res? Mm. I don't think that I can. I think it's like. It's just a general misunderstanding of like trans identity or it's just, yeah, it's an ignorance. It's an ignorance and, and a judgment maybe off of like Caitlyn Jenner or like more popularized kind of sensationalized trans folks that create, um, stereotypes or that allow people to you know jump onto a stereotype and I feel like there's you know what's in pop or modern culture it's like always so disheartening when you there's like comedians like it was like Arsenio Hall or um what's his name Dave Chappelle you know where they kind of like it's like you're still making these same like whack jokes it's like that you know Mm-hmm. You're ma- you're using someone else's identity for the basis of your joke. Like this isn't even clever. Come on. So it's just like dated jokes, like insensitive jokes. I feel. Yeah. Um. I don't know if you want to go into this zone, but I wanted to know if you wanted to talk a little about your experience of Burning Man, just as a counterpoint of <laughs> insensitive community contact. Sure, yeah. It was something I had to live through and experience. Um, Yeah, I went to work on an art project to build an installation. And performed there. And that was interesting. Like, um, the... Yeah, like, I never had a stage that was a desert. And where I felt like I could say anything that I really wanted. And we burned an American flag during my set. And that was really beautiful. At sunrise. So, like, there's moments, you know, that I'm like, fuck yeah. Like, where else can this happen? Not to say that I think it's, at the time, that's how it felt, right? And, you know, now I'm like conceptualizing how there can be other places where those things can happen that aren't exclusively you know done at burning man but it create it create definitely created this idea in my head of like oh, okay we're allowed 
these different types of freedoms. But the community was terrible. And that's why I couldn't participate anymore. That's why I couldn't go again. Was I wanted to get headdresses banned because it was just it was terrible seeing these like white Europeans and American flag bikinis wearing headdresses. And you try to talk to them. You try to create conversation. Sometimes they wouldn't even be able to understand you. And then other times they just didn't give a shit. And then sometimes it was like, well, who the who has the energy to keep having this conversation when you're tripping on acid and you want to have a good time? So it didn't, I don't think that it's a safe space for native people. Like there's no, there's no anchor. There's no, I didn't see any community there, but maybe there's different native folks who go. They're just, I wasn't plugged in, you know, I don't want to erase anybody if they're there, but. It's interesting that it was like, on one hand, a platform for you to experiment and feel kind of like the wildness of what like performance can do. Mm-hmm. And then for it to be coupled with a group of people that are completely outside of the landscape of your politics and like yep. relationships. Yeah. Yeah, that was, it was definitely confusing. But that's why I couldn't go back. It was just too much of a range of emotions. And then like watching people defend the white folks wearing the headdresses was so disgusting to me. It's like somebody was like, talk about radical inclusion. I'm like, what? You know, it was that just make any sense. <laughs> it was just twisted the other way. And that's yeah. why I'm like, okay, this is your community. These are the people who are in your burning man community. And I'm just one person who's trying to talk to all of you who are defending each other and your pillars of expression or whatever they are. Totally. I mean, I obviously, like, this is a community of, like, the most kind of privileged elite, like, also uh, Silicon Valley bros Mm -hmm. that exist to be then, like, whatever, spending so much money on their survival shit to then trip in the desert. But when you you have connected (coughs) with audiences or where you have felt like, you're um, performing in a place that you feel more related to. Can you think of, like, I don't know, a specific instance of that? or um... I guess no. I mean, I haven't connect. Like, that was a really beautiful way to connect with the land also while you're mm-hmm. performing. At Standing Rock, actually. As Standing Rock was another place where we had renegade parties, like parties where we would just, like concerts, we would just throw up with speakers and this um, generator and a microphone. And there was a show we did there, No Thanks, No Taking. And it was so amazing. I There's footage of it, and I'm still trying to get this footage. Kanahus has it. The women's media like filmed it and there was a couple other people and Chotima was there and there were the lights were car lights and people's flashlights and we were the pipeline is over here and we are like just directing all of our rage like at the enemy and then everybody was just like feeling your words that was probably one of the most powerful moments that I had as an artist because everybody was just like breathing with you and just 
it's like oh shit this is why i make music for moments like this Mm. Mm. that reminds me of like during the election or um what's it called when trump was inaugurated Mm. during his inauguration and when i'm just like like it was mostly like queer witches going to all these different like really violent centers around lower manhattan um and we just cast spells because like what could one do when, like, literally the entire country was, like, celebrating or whatever, supporting, watching um, that moment in time? And so there's just, like, this, like, <laughs> little tribe of uh, queer people just trying to gather what energy, what kind of, like, life force you had to direct it towards centers of the same sort of, like, evil, whatever, like, connection that is mm-hmm. the state to that happening and that Anyway, it just made me remember that part. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> um, yeah, I guess we're going to wrap up soon, but I wanted to know if there's like any other stories that come to mind that you feel like would be important to share for this archive or messages that feel kind of urgent or... Mm. Yeah, I mean, free the kids in the camps. Free the kids in the concentration camps in the South. I think that... We need to not forget that there's thousands and thousands of youths being taken away from their parents at the southern border. Um, they're being lost or being displaced, and it's a continued um, reinforcement of the genocide against our native people. This happened before the 60s scoop, if you look it up. Um, it's basically the church and the government in Canada scooped up a bunch of native kids in the 60s, put them into residential homes, similar to what you know is happening now in the South, separating native youth from their parents and indoctrinating them, but also causing a fuck ton of trauma, causing um, uh, assimilation, the loss of language, right? Like my dad was one of these people. He was put into a residential school and lost his language he went in fluent in mohawk at the age of four and came out at seven and no longer could speak our native language he spoke english and my dad was really young and he's since passed and he didn't talk about the abuse that happened there you know other than his mouth being washed out with soap and being beaten and he, to the day he passed, he wasn't able to learn his language. He had a mental block because he was beaten when he spoke it. But I know that there's a lot of other abuse and sexual violence that happened to people, you know, because they've spoken about it. Um, and this is a generation, at least two generations later, and we still feel it, right? It's it's impactful in our community one, two generations later. And so I watch what happens and is happening right now at the border in the South. And my heart hurts because I know that this is purposeful. The separation of children from their parents, because it's not just Spanish speaking kids. The majority of the kids that are in the camps and they're in detention centers, they're speaking their traditional languages, right? It's not just Spanish. These are kids who are, who are native from the south from like the yucatan from their 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 mayan their aztec you know they're from places that are now el salvador or you know they're what's mexico but they're they're the same people who are inside of these camps and 
I'm, I, I know, I know what happens from experience, right? Like I'm still struggling to learn my native language to get that language back. So free the kids and free the camps and do not stop putting pressure on representatives. Do not stop putting pressure on different media outlets. Just, we, we need to get these kids out of these concentration camps. Thank you, Dio. Yo, yo, go on. Ona, ona, giwa hai.